You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. India is one of the most populous countries in the world with a growing need for energy. More and more people are moving to big cities, getting better jobs, earning more money and are becoming middle class, wanting to live comfortable lives. Industries are currently growing hand in hand with fossil fuel emissions. At the same time, India has a historic opportunity to shift its fossil fuel economy and industrialize through solar and wind energy. A country blessed with sun-soaked deserts and windy coastlines have all the possibilities to a clean energy boom. My name is Julia Vrius and with me in South Asia Initiatives podcast Climate Lens South Asia, I have Axel Nordenstam, analyst at the Asia program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome. Good to be with you, Julia. You've covered climate and energy politics in India for a while now, so I'm very happy to have you along in this podcast. I have also spoken to Ayay Matur, Director General for TERI, the Energy and Resource Institute and Kanika Shabla, Director for Energy Finance at Council on Energy, Environment and Water. To start with, Axel, how would you briefly describe India's energy mix? Conventional energy sources dominate the power sector in India. Um, coal, oil and natural gas are dominant, especially coal since India has the fifth largest coal reserves in the world and the the uh, coal mining sector was actually liberalized this summer. Um, however, the renewable energy sector is growing. Over the past five years, the installed capacity of uh, renewables has increased, if I remember correctly, by 17% per annum. In general, there is a growing demand for energy across India, and clean energy sources, wind, solar, hydrogen are part of the public discussion. So why is India's energy transition so crucial for uh, the rest of the world? The population is growing. According to the United Nations, India will be the most populous country in the world by uh, 2027. So the demand for energy is crucial here, not only in urban areas, but also in uh, rural rural areas. And the fundamental question is then to what extent this uh, energy demand will be met by clean energy or by old conventional energy sources. I've spoken to Kanika Shaula, Director for Energy Finance at Council on Energy, Environment and Water, and she underlines the fact that India is an ideal place for solar energy. So actually, you know, India is um, a very, very large uh, market for solar energy. We have more than uh, 300 days of the sun shining in most parts of the country. And just in terms of, you know, harnessing that resource, of course, it makes sense for us to kind of make that big shift. But in order to make that transition, even though we've set the top line targets of 100 gigawatts of solar by 2022 and then, um, you know, a large part Um, of the 450 gigawatts that's been announced for 2030 will also come from solar. We don't necessarily always have a very clear picture of what is the kind of capital required. And that capital required is not insignificant. I mean, you know, just the 100 gigawatts target had with it a $100 billion price tag. So it's not a small amount of capital, but that shift will come 
mainly because of how much sun we have, but also how competitive solar prices are. Um, the solar prices that we're seeing in the Indian market today are some of the lowest anywhere in the world. And the very large market opportunity in the run up to 2030 and beyond uh, makes it a, a really interesting market for investors all over the world, not just in India. It's uh, among the cheapest or the cheapest solar energy is is made in India, but still it's uh, more expensive than it could be. How can uh, we get the prices down? That is such a great question, Julia, because, you know, we always think that the reason that renewable energy uh, power are, are, um, and solar energy in specific, the reason that it's expensive is because the technology is expensive. And analysis that we have done at CEW actually suggests that a very large part, and in fact, the majority of a single unit of uh, renewable energy power, um, the, the cost of that actually, or the majority of the cost actually comes from the cost of financing, which is both debt and equity servicing. And so actually any future gains in that price decline will come when uh, the, the debt becomes cheaper. And so at the moment, we've already seen, you know, between 2014 and now that the, the price of borrowing for solar projects has come down, but it can come down more. And the reason is because that there is still quite a large risk premium that uh, borrowers are paying when they're building solar projects. And this risk is posed by several um, renewable energy specific aspects like, you know, technology risk and things like that, quality, whatever. But that's not even the big part. The big part is things that are out of the the control of the developer. This is usually, you know, the poor financial health of the electricity utilities. And because of that, there is often delays in payment, um, which can hurt the cash flows of these companies that are doing the borrowing. Then other things like currency fluctuation um, and, and other macroeconomic risks all play a role. So actually to bring down the price, you need to address the different risk variables that act as an impediment. 1.5 million farmers in Karnataka are getting help to install solar power pumps right now. Hmm. What other projects or examples do you have of the ongoing shift? So actually the ongoing shift is, um, you know, one that is all around us. I mean, for instance, India's largest thermal power generating company, which is called NTPC, um, just and it, the reason it was called that is called the National Thermal Power Corporation, just changed its name to just NTPC because they no longer want to be just thermal power plant based. They want to have much more solar in their portfolio, which they've already started building. Um, Coal India, which is, you know, again, a state-owned enterprise that that um, is, you know, the, the entity that does the coal mining and, and transport, et cetera, wants to become carbon neutral and, and has made a commitment of uh, a three gigawatt solar installation. The Indian Railways is also adopting solar. So there is a lot of evidence where um, the market opportunity and because of the cost economics of solar being so good that, that the adoption is, you know, really all around us. And these are not always government led. A lot of it is private companies and private businesses. And that's actually the 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 most, um, I would say, sustainable part of this transition is that it's really normal um, households that are uh, demanding uh, more and more solar power, whether it's in the form of rooftops or, you know, um, via the utilities through a greener energy mix because the economics is just good. So it's not just ideological. It's also because um, it, it helps um, in enhancing the affordability of power. In Delhi, where you are at the moment, the vehicles, the number of vehicles on the streets are increasing all the time. And what have we seen when it comes to electronic vehicles in 
in Delhi and in other big cities in India. So the electric vehicle transition actually offers a huge opportunity for India, especially in the context of this green recovery, because um, from my point of view, I think there's an opportunity to pivot. Um, We're likely to see quite a lot of first time um, ownership of vehicles, um, you know, especially two wheelers, um, as as people try and, you know, uh, find modes of transport that are are, um, compatible with social distancing. And, you know, of course, um, public transport isn't necessarily. So in there's that opportunity to kind of use that first-time ownership to, to uh, get people to buy more electric vehicles. The, the state government of Delhi recently announced uh, uh, an electric vehicle policy as well. Uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, quite a lot of interest from uh, different manufacturing companies to offer both two-wheeler as well as four-wheeler um, options. Uh, we see a lot of the uh, fleet operators that are, are converting towards electric vehicles. So there is some you know, early stage movement that's happening in this space. But there is still more to be done in the, especially in the charging sector, because we don't have, um, you know, when you look around the city, there's not that many charging spots. Um, so we need more and more charging stations. And again, here as well, the um, Energy Efficiency Services Limited, which is one of the government-owned enterprises, it has been deploying some charging stations as well as, you know, some of the electricity utilities and then some private operators as well. So I would say that the opportunity is immense. And then there's already early movers, but we are uh, very far from scale. So what are the biggest challenges when it comes to the energy transition at the moment? I think the big challenges to the overall energy transition uh, continue to be, I would say, a few different things. But number one, of course, is the availability of affordable capital. And that's kind of where we started this conversation as well. And, and I'd like to break this down into two parts. One is how much capital is available and then the price at which it's available, right? And one is that, that the infrastructure um, as a whole in India has a, quite a lot of reliance on uh, bank debt. Uh, we don't have a very deep and well-functioning bond market that can be used to kind of refinance that debt. And just in terms of you know how much capital is available in the banking system, um, the amount that is required to enable this transition is far greater than anything that the banks can provide. That already opens India up to kind of this this need to borrow from overseas, and then that um, has certain challenges as well. So um, the, there is the primary challenge around the availability of capital, and then even if capital is available, is it available at a price that that makes uh, a lot of these new technologies um, and, and you know the transition sectors com- uh, competitive with incumbent sectors, and here you know risks play a really important part. The incumbent sectors, obviously, there is a familiarity that the financial sector has with them, uh, which is not there with the new technologies, and that already results in you know some perceived risks. And then there are the real risks that we talked about before as a result of the combination of these two things. Um, the cost of borrowing is, is higher. And so there is, you know, an important role that public money can play to de-risk these sectors, to kind of underwrite um, some of the risk that, that the financial community faces so that some of the more risk averse capital, like from institutional investors, like pension funds and insurance companies can also come into Um, the clean energy sectors, because those are large pools of capital that are looking for kind of um, long-term investment opportunities. 
but also are looking for like stable returns and have a lower risk appetite. So if you can just address the lower risk appetite part through using some um, public hedging facility, the other two are actually um, just the amount of capital and for how long it's available can really act as a as a way to uh, give a fillip to the clean energy sector and the transition overall. Thank you, Kanika Shabla, for being a part of Climate Lens South Asia. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Axel, what would you say are the major challenges for this extremely ambitious energy transition? Um, I see two challenges. The first one is translating ambitious goals to reality, and the second one is attracting large-scale uh, investments. The, the ambitious goals that I'm referring to is uh, the goal announced by Prime Minister Modi last year, 450 gigawatt renewables as a goal for 2030. And this was actually reiterated this weekend as well at the, at the Climate Ambition Summit. Having studied this over a while, this is a, an enormous uh, increase in terms of ambition. Um, back in, 10 years ago, the ambition for solar energy not only was 20,000 megawatt. Uh, and now we are talking about 450 gigawatt in, in uh, renewable energy as a total. So this is a major ambition. The question is whether that will become reality. Uh, lack of funding is a recurrent factor that... Uh, that I have also identified in my own research. One should also remember that India's economy has taken a hit by the COVID crisis, so the recovery is pressing. And the question is how India can attract large-scale investments um, to the renewable energy uh, transition in this post-COVID recovery uh, phase. India is still going through something which no other country has done before. Uh, what do you see? In a nutshell, the, the, the challenge is basically funding, right? Uh, what is needed is a massive amount of, of investments, both private and public investments, to, to translate those ambitions into reality. I have spoken to Ayay Mathur, Director General of TERI, the Energy and Resource Institute, and he is also a member of Prime Minister Modi's Council on Climate Change. He's convinced that the pandemic and lockdown in India has highlighted the importance of a clean energy transition. The COVID crisis has, in a sense, accentuated the importance of renewables. Renewables, of course, have a must-run status, and therefore any backing down that has occurred has occurred in coal-based thermal plants and not in the renewable energy plants. We have seen a growth. In fact, there have been several tenders for renewable energy capacity, including a tender, the first one ever, for round-the-clock renewable energy. So for us, we have seen the COVID pandemic lockdown as an era in which there have been new discoveries uh, in the renewable energy sector. Can you give uh, an example of... Uh how the energy sources have been affected by the pandemic? The overall reduction in electricity use in India, it dipped down to about 25% less than what it was at the beginning of the pandemic, beginning of the lockdown. Of this 25%, something like 80, 82% has been carried by coal-based power plants. 
we have also seen that the hydropower plants also took a hit and produced less. But we have seen, but these are plants with uh, storage and therefore you, if you don't produce tomorrow, today you can produce tomorrow. What we have really seen is that wind and solar have been used fully and obviously as a percentage of the total that uh, increased from the normal 10-11% uh, over the course of the year to, to at that time as high as 20-22%. Of course, the economy uh, took a turn uh, during the pandemic. Uh, what are the prospects uh, for a sustainable green recovery of uh, the economy in India? One of the things that we have seen after the COVID uh, uh, economic lockdown is a greater emphasis on operating costs, on productivity and on profitability. This has been helped by the fact that the economic stimulus that the government has provided is in the form of credit. And particularly for the agriculture and for the small and medium industry sectors, because that's where job growth and economic growth are the maximum. So what we have seen is an emphasis in investments, which lead to lower costs and clearly energy efficiency and renewables are two areas where this is immediately apparent. Nowhere is it more apparent than, for example, in the agriculture sector, where using solar pumping instead of electric or diesel pumping helps reduce costs, as well as a huge range of other benefits to various stakeholders. This uh, shift towards uh, solar and wind uh, energy is, is not an easy journey. In what way are the policymakers supporting this quite challenging shift? The key challenge that renewables present today are two. The first is that till a few years ago, their costs were still much, much more than those of electricity from coal and other fossil fuels. That has declined. And today, solar electricity in India is the cheapest form of electricity, but only when the sun is shining. And that points to the second problem, which is that in order to have round the clock renewable electricity, we need large amounts of storage as well. And during the pandemic, one of the tenders that was put out and opened and did a price discovery was on the supply of round-the-clock renewable electricity with solar and storage batteries. And the price that was discovered was very competitive with coal-based electricity at this point of time. The policymakers right now are focusing on how do we bring the price down both for solar electricity or renewable electricity alone, as well as for renewable electricity plus storage, so round-the-clock renewable energy. And I think once we come to the point where this renewable energy plus storage costs less than coal, then there'll be no more justification for anybody to invest in uh, fossil fuel-based electricity generation. And how far away are we from that point? The pretender that was opened in, I think it was in June this year, was for the supply of round-the-clock renewable energy in two years' time. So there's a very good possibility that in two years, we will have renewables plus batteries providing electricity at prices that are competitive with coal, which would therefore imply that all future capacity in India, and electricity demand in India is increasing at 5% a year, all future demand 
is then met from renewables uh, with storage backup. You speak about pricing as one of the main challenges to really get a clean energy transition. How in, are you working f- to, to change this? India has, over the years, tried out a particular business model. And the business model is that there is a company, uh, in the case of energy efficiency, it was Energy Efficiency Services Limited. In the case of solar energy, it's Solar Energy Corporation of India, who aggregate demand. So they go to various people, buyers, and ask them how much electricity do you need or how many bulbs do you need. And then on the other side, they do bulk procurement. They put out a tender for bulk electricity. And they keep on aggregating more and more. The prices keep dropping more and more. And therefore, we are on this trend of increasing volumes and decreasing prices. It's a model that has worked. And we are now looking at this model doing this kind of volume increase and price reduction in the case of renewable energy plus storage as well. How is solar and wind energy uh, complementing each other? This is very site-specific, it's geography-specific. So, for example, if you look at the state of Karnataka, the two, solar and wind, complemented each other. The government of India has also brought out a program in which they are incentivizing, in terms of merit order, They're incentivizing the setting up of solar and wind facilities at the same place. Obviously, if there's a place which is windy, there's a lot of space in between wind turbines where solar panels could be put. And what it does, it increases the total capacity factor of that solar wind energy farm and therefore makes it more attractive, more competitive with other electricity sources. But as I said, this is geography dependent. In what way could uh, Sweden and the European Union be a partner to India in a transition? India and Sweden have had a long partnership in the area of energy. We have had energy and energy efficiency working groups for a long time. But the place where we collaborate best is around technologies. Uh, India and Sweden have a joint program on innovative technologies. And I think it's a model for other countries of the world as well. Of course, the needs of people are different. Of course, the history is different. So therefore, on policies, there could be uh, learnings, but it is a lot more difficult to move it across these very different jurisdictions. But on technology, both Sweden and India have huge and common needs. And what is... India looking for in a partner like Sweden? I think the best is provided by an example of a couple of things that are happening. So, for example, in the steel industry, as we look to the future, the largest amount of growth, the largest amount of new steel plants that will be set up in the next 15 years will be in India. Will they be coke-based? Well, if they're coke-based, then CO2 will be produced. But do we have any technologies that are non-coke-based? There is a Swedish plant, an SSAB plant, which is using a hydrogen-based technology. It's still at the pilot scale, but I'm told that the demonstration would be uh, successfully proven by the year 2025. This is an example 
of how steel producers in Sweden and India can work together towards establishing steel plants that are not CO2 producing. We've got similar examples in a number of uh, industries. Uh, Paper is one, uh, efficient motors is another. In all of these areas, the kinds of joint technology development programs have worked to our common benefit. Thank you, Ayamatur, for being a part of Climate Lens South Asia. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julia. It was such a pleasure. So where do we stand right now? How do you look at the future when it comes to clean energy in India? The renewable energy sector obviously has developed immensely over the past 10 years with increased capacity, renewed ambitions, lower prices for clean energy. Uh, And there's also a growing uh, debate in in India about uh, clean energy and the the importance of actually achieving this uh, and reaching a green energy transition. Thank you, Axel Nordenstam, for being a part of um, South Asia Initiatives, the podcast Climate Lens South Asia. And thank you, Ayay Matur, Director General for Teri, and Kanika Shavla, Director for Energy Finance at CEV. Thank you, Julia. I very much enjoyed it. Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. Catch you later.